This is The Cool Down with me, Phil Rockner, and the always interesting Steph Hansen. With thanks to Triathlete Magazine, let's have a conversation. This is The Cool Down, Phil Rockner and Steph Hansen paddling this canoe. Steph, how are you going? Um, I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> Deal- just dealing with some stuff here, which makes it difficult to do remote podcasting, but it's what we do. We get shit done. <laughs> the photo you sent me was a hole in the floor. Not like you're burying someone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> got to be yeah, real this... nice to Steph at the moment. You'll end up in the hole. Yeah. <laughs> Frankie keeps saying to me, why is that man building? Why is, why, why is that man? Why is a hole? And I have to tell her that he's lifting up because the house needs underpinning, whatever. I don't know. And he's like, oh, yeah, we'll just dig a little bit out of here. And then we open the door and it's it'll be close to six foot. Wow. It's not that. It's not that. Maybe. Actually, no, you can stand up in it. Let's go four foot. Yeah. It's pretty deep. So I'm like making sure all the the locks on the door are on. Otherwise, Frankie's like, yeah, stepping into the abyss. Yeah. <laughs> Into another world, you got. Yeah, I have no idea what that what anyone does in my house either. I just they come in and they go, "I'm doing this, and it's going to cost you this much." I go, "You know what? Go yeah. for it. Just go for it." Hey, um, did you ever do an interview that you just hated? Did you ever do an interview you oh. sat there and you freaking hated? Like just went, "Oh, this is I hate. I hate this. I hate my life." Yeah, this uh, guy Phil Rockner interviewed me <laughs> once, and it was terrible. From no, um, the honest answer, yes, um. You don't have to name names, but you can so give me the give us set us up. Where were you? What were you doing? It well, it was. Um, I, I mean, I guess it's not a specific one, but there's ones that come to mind that are all very similar, and it's those interviews that you do when the person at the other end just gives you nothing. But it can be for a variety of reasons. The person at the other end is no good with media and just takes a lot of gentle persuading that they're in a safe place and they can talk about things. Um, but they st- it's just yes, no answers. And you've got no room to play, no room to move. And that's what podcasting is right for. It's that long form style of interviewing. Um, not those short, sharp responses that you get, you know, at the end of a race, which are all stock standard. Uh, So when someone's not giving you anything and you have to riff the entire time, you just, I mean, I'm a doodler when when I'm sitting in front of a computer or whatnot, and you can tell by the amount of doodling I've done (laughs) just how bored I am. And, uh, yeah, like I've gone through books at some stage interviewing (laughs) people who just give you nothing. Um, How about you? Uh, I can name a couple. Um, I reckon we did this one. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I know people are going to go, I'll name one name for you though, but I'll do one. We were on first off the bike. First off the bike was a radio show before it was anything. So there's a, for those of you in America, there's a sports radio network here in, in Victoria, which is commercial sports radio. And they had a whole lot of niche shows. And that's how first off the bike got its start. Like it started as a, as a one hour slot. Uh, at eight o'clock on a Friday night with myself and a guy called Matthew Keenan. If you don't know Matt Keenan, he is the Australian voice of the Tour de France. Now he's gone on to greatness. He works for the ASO, does a lot of their races. Um, Really good bloke. And a very, no one, no one knows this. He's such a good dancer. He moves, (laughs) he moves like water. Like you've never seen a guy dance. Oh, he is. No one knows this about Matt Keenan. I'm going to drop it now. Um, He is a primo dancer. You would not, you no. would not think that looking at him, would you? Google his head. He doesn't look like anything. <laughs> he looks like a bit nicer version of Novak Djokovic. Um, oh, God. You know, <laughs> I love Matty. And look, we worked together for years. Um, and then when 
first off the bike finished as a radio show. I think we went for four years. Um, it, you know, and I went to him and I said, look, do you mind if I dot com this and make it this? And he was, you know, very gracious. He was a great guy. Um, but we worked together forever and, and, and still, you know, it's, you know, I still hold him in, in, in great fondness, but we did this interview with a, a cyclist who was an a-hole. Oh my God. Yeah. Even Matt, who is the biggest cheerleader in the world, he sat there going, this is crap. This is crap. He was writing on the paper next to me because we we're doing it live. This is shit. This is crap. I'm not, not liking this. The guy gave us nothing, like literally gave us nothing. And he was a guy who rode with Miguel and Jermaine. So how many stories mm. do you reckon he's got? Mm. Thousands. That's what? a cycling one. The second one was Bevan Doherty. Going to name him. Uh, <laughs> 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 we were in Auckland, 70.3 Auckland when it was there. Um, very first time. Uh, my editor was a young buck who was very um, <laughs> opinionated uh, and, again, ripping bloke. But him and Bevan Doherty did not get on well. Like, it was just oil and water. They just disliked each other from the go. And Timmy's asked him a question in the press conference, in the pre-press conference. I've got no idea what it was about. I think Bevan was doing um, his first Taupo. And that was in March. And he was asking why you were racing in January or something like that. Oh, and the look that we got. (laughs) I remember. Yeah. You would have been there. Yeah. It was just, we, uh, and to his credit in October that year, I think he was in Kona. um, He was really lovely, but he wanted to shoot us in January. (laughs) (laughs) It was horrible. You know, oh, and I, that's so funny. Andrew Messick was there and we were trying to, I don't know, like Dan Berglund was there as well, the head of media. And we just, we were trying to put on a good front and we just looked like douchebags. <laughs> it was terrible. To be terrible. fair, you were good at that, doing that by yourself. You, you didn't need Bevan. Yeah. No, 100%. <laughs> we had a swagger about us that was so not earned. We had nothing <laughs> in the bag, but we just thought, you know what? Because it's like, you know, it's like... um the the radio callers here right like you, you listen to a football match here and they're constantly saying oh this is you know triple m football the best call team in in australia and you don't think anything of it right but then after about half an hour they say it 20 times during the game you're like oh well they're the best call team in australia it's that's how we went we just said if we tell each other we're the biggest and the best then people will believe us it's it's kind of that not so subliminal messaging, right? It's just flat out we're going to ram it down your throats until you Pretty believe much. us. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. That just it reminds me um, uh, of a particular interview that I did with Daniela Reef, and uh, she, you know, I was one of the last people to speak to her. I'm sure yeah. she was over it. Um, and but I rated her so much with her response, and I, I was like, "What am I going to ask?" It's pre-racing Kona. She's been asked all the questions, you know, stock standard. So I went up to her and said, okay, you've got all these same questions coming at you left, right, and center. What would you like me to ask you? And oh, she, nice. I thought like, yeah, I thought, oh, this could be, and she just looks flat out straight to me, straight down the camera, sorry. And just went, isn't that your job? And I was like, <laughs> oh, burned. But, and then she laughed about it, but I was like, oh gosh, there's, there's that sense of humor that you don't really see very much in Daniela. Um, but she, like I, it made me rate her a lot because I was That's like, yeah, f- yeah, fair call. Yeah, but fuck. <laughs> yeah, Chrissy Wellington was the same, right? Chrissy Wellington would look at me and just go, "This better be good," you know. And we used to joke about our yearly catch up in Kona. Mm. But then if you emailed her during the year to say, "Hey, Chrissy, can we get a few minutes?" and she'd just go, "Well, what do you want?" <laughs> Don't ask me crap. And you'd be like, and so we'd sit there literally. I can remember sitting there, three of us in a room, 
three eggheads in a room going, what are we going to ask her? Because she's expecting yeah. awesome. And, yeah. you know, to her credit, do you remember that? Do you remember that we were at the Kona press conference when she basically got the microphone and said, I'm better, faster, and stronger than last year and dropped the mic? No. Oh, badass. Like the most badass move I've ever seen at a press conference. She just said, I'm fitter, stronger, and better than last year. Boom. Oh, my gosh. And everyone went, everyone just went, everyone did that. They went, oh, crap. It's Chrissy. That's and a then, standing the ovation. She pulled out. Remember the year she pulled out? Mm. I was on the, standing on the dock there. And there were women professionals there going, oh, my God, she's not racing. She's not racing. She's not racing. Mm. And I remember Crowey talking to one saying, hey, calm, calm down. Calm down. Yep. This is a great opportunity for you. Yep. Mental. Oh, yeah. Do you know what else is mental? Tennis. <laughs> um, <laughs> what, are, we, are we talking about tennis right now, the Australian Open? Are we yeah, opening well, that? <laughs> I go over year, right? I go over year the Australian Open. I don't yeah. know why because I don't even like tennis. Um. And I, I'm an outside court guy. So last yesterday I went and I got tickets to the main arena and I sat in there and watched um, an Aussie kid playing some other rando. And um, it was boring. Boring, right? Yeah. You've got to go to the outside courts. The outside courts are where it's at because you just wander around. You don't need a ticket. You can, like, buy a ground pass and you wander around. You go, oh, this guy looks good. This guy looks great. Shout out to my man, John Pierce, who won in his doubles game, ranked number five in the tournament this year. Um, yeah, taught him. He's a ripping boy, ripping kid. Um, anyway, uh, and the- Wait, hang on. Look, sorry. You taught him. You didn't teach him tennis. We need to no, make no, that no. pretty clear. No, no, taught him, <laughs> taught him English. Um, a really good kid. Like, you know, when you, I'm a, I've been a teacher now for years and there are kids who stand out as just being very good humans. And he was definitely one of them and caught up nice. with him after the game, you know, photos of my kids, just, you know, really good human. Awesome. Um, but the entourage these people have, and I think of triathlon. I just all I could think of yesterday was the little triathlon professional in his hotel room or hotel hotel room building their bikes, <laughs> right? pulling them out of a bike bag. I can you imagine? Yeah, I mean, I was watching some of the big hitters hit up with twenty seven dudes around them, and everybody doing everything for them. Yeah. Oh, and when you go to Kona and, and you watch, you know, Lionel Sanders just walking down Elite Drive by himself. Yep. Versus. You know, every time, even like a you rank number 400 in the world, there's 27 dudes standing around you making sure no one goes near you. It's yeah. wild. I, but so I always had this thing and, and it was something that I wanted to eventually do with Wits Up. Um, I just never got around to it. But I like I always said that professional athletes need to be treated as professional athletes as well. And I, mm. I wanted to set up this whole thing where they would be picked up from the airport. And I know some do get looked after to, to an extent. You know, like roll out the red carpet type of feel, pick yeah. them up from the airport, get them to their hotel or accommodation or whatever it might be. And you've got someone who is like your assistant uh, or to a few athletes over that period of time. Let's make it as simple and as easy for them so that we can have the best athletes on the start line race day. Yeah. That's that's I always wanted to be able to do something like that. And yeah, never happened. But, but they need that. They need... Mm. Again, you've got to pay them, obviously, but like races, it's not up to the race, I guess, because they're all individual. But when you, and again, tennis, I know, is, is, and then people listen, they go, oh, yeah, but tennis is a global sports massive. And I get that, right? I understand. I'm not that silly because it is like you look at the, even like, I, you know, I, I, um, parked under the tennis center yesterday. So right in because I don't like catching public transport. 
Because of people or because of viruses? Viruses <laughs> and people. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to spring the, I'm going to spring a few bucks and just park in a really nice car park, like literally a 30 meter walk from the front gate. And the amount of players' cars that were going in as well. And you just think, God, I know Kia's the sponsor and they're giving them a ton of cars, but even branding the cars and putting them around, like, you know, and yeah, they get driven everywhere. They don't have to do a single thing. They get straight to the hotel. I mean, I remember Sammy Bananas used to drive um, cars for the for the tennis and he would say that they would, you know, they did nothing. He, they called him Sammy Bananas because he always had those lolly bananas in the car. Ah, uh, got it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Random side fact. Jimmy, <laughs> one of Jimmy Nutz's crew, and if anybody in that realm oh, knows what it. we're talking about, um, yep. he had a tattooist called Shaky Bill. Did he tell, ever tell you that story? No. So his tattooist, his tattooist's name was Shaky Bill. <laughs> it's the best name for a tattooist. So good. It's, it's just so Jimmy. Anyway, we're digressing <laughs> a chant like champions here. The point I'm trying to say is that, yes, it's a big money sport, but your idea you know, that you've just mentioned where – you know, like I just feel for the triathletes who, you know, they go, to, they fly to a race, they're pulling there. I mean, wouldn't it be great to just as a pro athlete just to turn up to your hotel, your bike, but your bike's in there built. You know, like you've got your own domestique sitting there, and some of them do, and and many of them are getting better at it. But it's a tough grind, isn't it? Oh, it, absolutely, yeah. But but in saying that, I also watched two unranked women playing yesterday, um, and they were on court seventeen. So yeah. a mile away from Broadway, and I mean, I mean, I'm sure it's not glamorous. Watch it; they looked, oh, they looked like they were. It was 30 degrees Celsius um, out there on the court, which means it's probably 45 Celsius on the court, and they were melting. It was just, oh, it just looked like such hard graft doing all that yesterday. And then, it, you know, but then I was like comforted by the thought that you know, like a second round person getting bundled out of the Australian Open is still going to make like 60 grand. So boohoo to you. Yeah, you lose your first match and you're still walking home with whatever it is, 20 grand yeah. or something ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Um, not going to feel bad for them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm good. No, but it did, it, every year it shines a light to me though on, you know, just on the on the, the levels of, of sport, you know, and where we are because mm. um, <laughs> just the amount, of, the amount of infrastructure for something like that would be huge. But I, I kind of imagine, you know, I can't imagine Super League and, you know, the um, – Collins Cup, et cetera, being small events either, you know, and, and, and we've all been to Ironman events. They're big infrastructure events. Mm. It's just that the pros are not, well, for a long time, haven't been the showstoppers. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, just quickly, 25,250 first round qualifier. Yeah, <laughs> yeah 25K. Yeah. And we're watching second round games. So obviously that's going to be escalated. Um, and into the third round, obviously it gets more. So, yeah, they're doing okay. They're all right. They're doing okay. I don't think any of them are paying for rackets because saw a few get smashed yesterday. I saw one dude getting real salty. Imagine um, if um, uh, triathletes did that if they had a bad bike ride and they yeah. just chucked their bike. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's happened at some stage, but certainly not to the no. same extent. No, there was that famous one of Bjarni Reese um, picking up his time trial bike and slinging it. Um, that could have been he was doled out of his mind. Who would know that guy? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, we got Mark Allen. This um, who? Yeah, I know. How many? How many names can the grip? The grips in your yeah. name, Zen Master. Um, you know, he obviously the you know one of the founding fathers of this sport. 
Um, mm. Race Ironman a dozen times. This is Kona. Um, not many people know, though, in 1999, he did win the world title, the ITU world title. So he won the mm. Olympic distance title and he went back and did the same. That was 89, which, of course, was the most famous of all the years. Um, yeah. Yeah, so not many people would probably know that if you're new to the sport. Um, if you don't know anything about him, Mondays with Mark Allen is hilarious. Just it's it gets loose. It gets real loose. <laughs> Um, which I love that about the guy. He can be as loose as he likes because he's done, you know, I can remember as a kid watching him. So he's a genius. Um, yeah. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what he he's up to at the moment. I want Before we jump on the call with Mark, do you still get a little bit fanboy with the likes of your Mark Allens? 100%. Mm. I can't not. Like I did Ironman Live with Welshie mm. uh, three times, I reckon. And every single time I did it with him, he was just awesome. He's such an amazing guy. But I tell him, I, I say to him, Greg, I used to have your poster on my wall. Mm. I had Mark Allen's poster on my wall too. He had a Nike poster on my wall. Yeah. It's hard not to. Like these are the guys who uh, we used to get the magazines and, you know, I'm in that sort of Chris McCormack era as we spoke to Macca last week. Like we were of that era. So when, you know, he was obviously operating at a slightly different level to me. Um <laughs> But that's the year we lived in. We we lived for the magazines. Like I yeah. did my first triathlon in 1987. So that'll give you an idea of, you know, and at that point, the USTS races, you know, you had Mike Pig, Jimmy Riccatello, Hal Robinson, Andrew McNaughton, um, the women's side, the Puntus twins, you had Erin Baker. Uh, you and had wasn't Liz- she just on Erin Baker? Mm-hmm. Uh, she was a game changer in women's sport. Like the woman was, you know, arguably the best in the world. Um, yep. And, you know, taking a stance to make sure that women were getting paid the same in prize money at particular races and actually saying, if you don't have it, I'm not coming. Yeah. Like just to, you know, like it takes a pretty special human to to be able to do that and really make a difference in the sport. Well, and sticking your guns yeah. too. Like, you know, it's one thing to pay lip service to something. It's another thing to take action against it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, she yeah, awesome. sorry. Yeah, no, no, inc- incredible. Awesome. Incredible. Yeah. 100%. And, and, you know, again, those women too, because we watched the NBC coverages of Iron Man, like they became our heroes as well. Mm. You know, there's not a gender problem for me. I just, I thought Liz, um, I thought PNF obviously was great. Mm. Um, we loved uh, Karen Smyers. Um, and, oh. you know, like just really, really outstanding women, you know, um, even, you know, watching, uh, I remember the 1991 world titles, watching Bianca Van Wosik like completely, uh, push herself over the edge. She couldn't yeah. finish. Like she crashed into a barrier. She couldn't run. Um, yeah. you know, watching her go, we were just gobsmacked. You know, that was the year Miles Stewart out sprinted. Uh, Rick Wells, I believe, um, you know, for the world title, you know, all that stuff was just big. And in this country, in yeah. Australia, like, you know, you had Brad Bevan, you had uh, Welshie, you had Stephen Foster, you had uh, Nick Croft, you had all these amazing guys going over to the States, Simon Skillicorn, all went over to the States and forged this um, way and forged the way, like Phil Anderson did forging the way for Australian cyclists to get into the Tour de France, mm. you know, um, yeah. and, you know, amazing um uh performances that we saw and it was really and cool it's yeah and it's something that i mean my childhood memories granted i didn't i didn't grow up 
um, in the world of triathlon. I didn't really get into it until my mid-20s. But I was a softball fanatic, baseball fan, and I I had posters um, from the magazines up on my wall. I collected baseball cards that I've still got in my mum's yeah. garage. And huh. it's just we don't we don't get that anymore. Like I, I can't imagine there's too many uh, kids with posters of triathletes on their walls anymore. And it's a, I mean, it, I imagine it's part of you know, technology and the fact that we go straight to the computer or straight to the phone for information or photos or footage of our um, uh, sports idols. But that kind of stuff, like, oh, I just, that is a very vivid memory in my yeah. head from my childhood. Yeah. and But when you don't have hand-eye coordination, you go to sports like triathlon. <laughs> it's so, <laughs> I used to do this thing where, <laughs> it's so true, I would interview when we could do things face-to-face with athletes and then occasionally I'd throw something like a ball or whatever at the athlete to see if they could catch it because <laughs> <laughs> yeah triathletes don't do coordination not nah, so much no nah, we're useless and oh, that's the thing I, I learned early that football was never going to be my thing I can't catch I can't do anything with a with a, a ball at all so yeah for me it was always going to be something swimming based so that's how we got into it but and again but having really good um Jared Donnelly was one of our PE teachers and he was the Oh. Winner of Ironman Australia, way back when, you know, way yeah. way back when. Um, and Rod Sodaro was also um, someone who coached me very early on, um, which was great. So you know, we got really well coached and and got into the sport with the right people, um, yeah. which was fantastic. And I think Jared's still flying around. Greg Stewart oh lived around God. the corner from me for years. He was third at Ironman Kona. Um, the year before Iron War or the year before, so it was him, Mark Allen, and. Dave Scott on the podium, this little known Australian guy, Greg yeah. Stewart. He was the um, first Aussie on the podium, wasn't he? Yeah. Ever? Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that might, I'm going to say 87. I'm going to, I'm going to, it was 88 was Molina. So 87 would have been when they were there. And no one knows who he is. He was third in Kona mm-hmm. overall. Like, and he lives just in downtown around the corner from me and he still breaks legs. Can't wow. ride with him, you know. Um, <laughs> Hey, but let's um let's let's zip across and um and have a chat uh to Mark Allen and, and find out what he's up to. Mark Allen, does anyone it doesn't need any introduction. I mean, he's literally uh you know the foundation of this sport alongside a couple of other dudes, and uh, we're so stoked that he's here. Mark, uh, welcome to the cooldown. Hey, great to be here. Um, excited to see what questions you have and to share a few thoughts. Hopefully I have a few good thoughts anyway. Let's see. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you do. Um, I, one of the key things I think that's just, you know, that's just jumping out is a lot of the talk and Steph and I've had this conversation a couple of times as well. It's just about the whole idea of the, the moving world title and, you know, the idea that we were seeing St. George this year and then we're going back to Kona if the island can support what it needs to uh, in this new world. Um, what are your thoughts just in terms of, I guess putting two world titles on in a year. And the second part to that question would be, you know, uh, moving the world title away from Kona. Yeah, those are two big questions. Uh, The first one, what do I think about having two Ironman world championship events in the same year? Um, It's happened before, you know, it happened in uh, 1982. They had, they had the race on the big Island of Hawaii in February. And then, as you know, they decided that February for a lot of the world was a tough month to be ready to, to race in, in, in Kona in, in the tropics. And so they changed it to October. So that year they, they had the event twice. 
but that was a different era. Nowadays, obviously, it's a whole different world with, um, you know, age groupers going faster than anybody even won races way back in the 80s and, and early 70s, late 70s. Um, and you've got professionals that are just mind blowing, putting in mind blowing performances. And so um, in light of COVID, I think it's perfectly fine uh, that they are putting on two world championship full distance races, Ironman distance races in the same year. And actually, I think it's um, genius that they're doing the two world championship events in different venues, because that makes it that makes it two different world championships. You know, if they had both races in Hawaii in the same year, it might seem redundant, kind of like, oh, well, they just did that in May and they're doing it again in October, you know, but having the first one in St. George on a course that uh, doesn't have doesn't have a long history. You know, there's not a lot of um pages in the history book that people can turn back and see, how do I race this course best? You know, how do I prepare for it? Of course, some of the athletes who will be competing did 70.3 worlds last September. And so they have a, they have a good taste and flavor for the race. Some of them have competed there in previous editions of events that they've had in St. George. So they know it, but nobody has done a full distance Ironman there with an entire stacked world-class field. And that will really, I think, change the dynamic of it. And it will be, I think actually, and, and I've talked about this, I talked about this last week in uh, Mondays with Mark Allen. I, th I think it's going to be the most complex Ironman distance race to win this, this season in 2022. It's a course that very few know. Um, it's, a, it's the first world championship Ironman distance race in three years. You know, you get rusty over time. It's the, and it's the first Ironman world championship, um, in three years, you know, on this course where everybody's had to race each other at that distance. And basically none of that's happened. No races, you know, last year there were a lot of super good Ironman events, but they were usually like one or two or three person matchups. They weren't a full stacked field like you're going to see in May. You know, you had, you had Lionel Sanders and Sam Long going at it. You had, um, you know, you had uh, the Tri Battle Royale, you know, two guys. You had all these great performances. Christian Blumenfeld going 721. You know, those are kind of very small fields with very focused um, competition. It's very different when you've got a ton of guys shaking it up, pushing the pace, trying to bust out early. And the final piece, I'm, I'm rambling here, but I think it's important for people to think about it. The final piece that's going to make that race difficult to win is that some of the athletes competing know that they probably don't have a good chance of winning in Kona, but they might if they can get ready, if they can be in Kona sh type shape in, a, in May, which is very hard to do for a lot of athletes, especially if they are then thinking to go to Kona in October and have the same kind of a, a repeat of what they do in May. So I think you're going to have some athletes coming into it in great shape in terms of May, but they're not going to be in Kona shape until October. It's hard to get there by May, but some athletes who are like, wait a minute, I don't know if I even have a chance of winning in Kona, maybe being top three, but in St. George, if I start training early, I think I can upset the, the apple cart. It's a long, yeah, isn't it? It's a long way to sort of, it's a long way from May, isn't it? Through to, through to October. And if you, and it's probably hard, isn't it? To, well, two different races, two different climates, trying to peak it, that point again is is a tough one um and 
would you be thinking that if you've gone big in St. George, then your Kona effort is going to be less? Absolutely. You know, I've seen that over history that the athletes that were in very, very, very top shape in May always struggled in Hawaii in October. It didn't matter who they were, uh, how talented they were. And um, some of the guys eventually kind of figured that out, that you can't, you can't be in Ironman Hawaii shape in May and then be at, at that same level in October. It's just too long of a stretch, even if you take time off. You know, a classic example of that was um, Chris McCormick. You know, he he was trying to win Kona. He couldn't win it. He was always in great shape in, in May, June doing, uh, you know, uh, Roth and, and crushing, but he was, he was in Ironman shape in, in May and June. He was Ironman lean in May and June. Then by the time he got to Kona, he was not in that kind of shape. He was over the edge. Jurgen Zak did the same thing in, in the eighties and, and early nineties. Uh, but then Maka, uh, you know, finally uh, I spoke with him a, a number of times. I said, you can't be in that good of shape that early if you want to win Kona. And so the, the first year that he won, he actually was in strong shape in those early Ironman distance races in the early season, but he, he was not in Kona shape. And then he had that reserve he needed in October. I'm just trying to remember um, in the women's field, if Daniela Reef did Roth and Kona in the same year successfully, but I can't remember. Have you guys got a? am not sure on that oh, one either. Yeah. I'm yeah, the last year, the last year she won. Kona was 2018, correct? Because Annie Hag mm. won in 2019. There was no 2020, 21 race. I think 2018, and I'm not sure if she if she uh, race challenge Roth that year or not. I'd have to look at my history books. But um, you can win big races early, but you mm. just can't be in Ironman peak shape early. And some athletes mm. are good enough that they don't have to be in that kind of shape to still win big races early. Like, for example, in my career, you know, the Nice International Triathlon was always held in, in May, early June timeframe. You know, I had big races in Australia and then Nice in that May, June timeframe. And I was able to win those races, but I was still not quite in Kona shape yet. And it, but it took, mm. it took backing off uh, after that first peak. Uh, doing some short distance races, getting my speed up, and then re- rebuilding for that final bit toward Kona. It you know it takes it takes ten months to get there, easy, um, but you can't do it in a linear fashion, and and you can't be there five months into it and then expect to be there five months later. No, and it's a it's a it's a tough one, and the idea too now that they're starting to put the world titles onto a merry-go-round, um, which you see in other sports, it works in other sports, um, but whether it works here we've we've sort of had this conversation on, and i'm sure a thousand podcasts have had it as well but given what you know and what your experiences are i mean it, it would obviously hold a lot more weight for you to see them swing the world title out to wherever um is it a is it as a, a mixed feeling for you or do you think it's inevitable that they'll get to that point um i don't know what iron man's long-term vision of that is i just know that um, you know, the Ironman in Hawaii is kind of like, that's, that's really the, the anchor and the hallmark of the sport. Um, I know that, you know, other, 
like 70.3 worlds changes every year. And I think that's a genius thing to do. So that each year that world championship is at a different venue. It really creates excitement. How will it be this year in St. George? How will it be next time in Finland? How will it be in New Zealand? You know, it, it creates excitement, but um, it doesn't have, it wasn't born with the same kind of history that, that the Ironman World Championship has. And I, I just don't think that if it rotates and goes to other places that it will have the same, um, it'll, that it would have the same aura about it because so much of what makes that race what it is, is the energy of the big island. And that's very different than anywhere else on the planet. Not that other places aren't great or incredible or beautiful or powerful, but it's what has um, infused the, that race and that competition with what it is today. And on top of that, it's, it, you know, it's a course that over time people, they know the landmarks, you know, it's sort of like mm. Boston marathon. You've got heartbreak Hill, you know, if it's like doing, would Wimbledon be the same if it was held in um, Indian Wells in, in Southern California? I don't think so. You know, you have to do certain events have to stay at their kind of like their official or unofficial birthplace. And I think, the Ironman in Hawaii is one of those. And it, it, you're so right. And we all talk about this. Anyone who's been to Kona for the world championships, there is this aura, this atmosphere, this vibe that I don't think you'll ever fully understand until you are there. Um, yes, pictures and uh, videos can capture it to a certain extent, but the, it's the second you land and you step off onto those lava rocks is uh, – it's something pretty special and unique. It's it's visceral. It's mm. intuitive. It's deep and it goes beyond words, what you feel mm. when you get off that plane. Mm. You know it's something different. And no, it doesn't matter if you're a volunteer, a, a, a fan cheering or an athlete racing, you're, you're affected by it. And there will be points during your time there where it's amazing. And there will be points during that time there where you will be tested on one level or, or another. It's sort of like a, it's like a place that, that's a, a, an intensive classroom of life. And, you hmm. know, as an athlete racing there, you really do have to transform yourself from who you were when you landed to who you will become through the race. If you're going to get the best out of yourself, if you, if you go there and just say, Oh, well, this, this is another race. I'm, I'm prepared for it. And I've got all the numbers. The, the numbers don't factor in um, how the impact of the island of Hawaii and how that influences everything that goes on there. It, it sounds kind of, it's a very non-Western way of looking at it, I guess I would say, because, mm-hmm. you know, look at, look at, for example, I'm sure you saw the, um, there was a New York Times article just recently on Christian Blumenfeld. Well, actually on the Norwegians it was, but they highlighted Christian Blumenfeld and, and, you know, the, the deep dive that they're doing into the numbers of training and really how they're helping him refine him and and Gustav Eden, how they're helping them refine their training to just completely optimize their human potential. Great stuff, but there's still going to be the element when they, when, and if they both end up in Hawaii that um, you just, you can't measure that, but will still impact your race. Yeah, I think I I agree. And look, obviously never seen it from your end, Mark. um, And I agree wholeheartedly with Steph is that when you step off the plane, there's the unquantifiable 
which I think, and, and I think we've talked about this as well in previous editions of this podcast, is, you know, Hawaii is the centerpiece of the sport and it's the centerpiece of Ironman's crown. I think if they move it, they're nuts. I think it's got absolutely no place <laughs> moving. It's park it. It's beautiful. It's it's as devastatingly beautiful as it is um on the opposite side of the spectrum when you watch and, you, and when you walk around town in race week and you know that 70% of the athletes that you walk past are going to have some version of explosion, you know, or more, <laughs> you know, at some point, it's just, it's just this really lovely, horrible sensation that you'd have as an athlete. Um, and not only that, like triathlon is so, so lacking in, in, foundation history you know in mm. in in and you and and guys like welshy and um you know dave all and paul and fraser aaron baker you know the puntus twins you know all put down this amazing legacy in the sport um and i think it does a real injustice if you go hey let's pick up the tent and move it along and then we'll just have hawaii as a race it's not it's not just a race there's there's more to it and um i think you and and People have tried to capture it. As you said, you can sit there and drill. The Norwegians can drill in the numbers all they like. Mm-hmm. But when they get on the island, I don't know, good luck to you. You know, like <laughs> if it works, it works. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, there's, sure, there's there's other um, venue locations where you could, you could um, have more athletes racing. You could have maybe... Um, some kind of enhanced banquets that you can't necessarily have there. You know, there's, there's all these sort of entertainment value things that could be done differently and whether it's better or not, you know, differently and maybe bigger scale somewhere else, but you pay the, you would pay the price. It would just be a, it would be a staged show as opposed to a life experience. Definitely. I um I was only talking about this with my husband the other day um, because he's raced there as an age grouper a couple of times. And when you're talking about landmarks of the race, uh, they have between him and his mates have a, like a gentleman's agreement that if when you get to the banyan tree down on Alihi Drive just before the finish, there's no passing in that section because mm. you want to soak up. Obviously a little bit different in the professional field, but as mm. age groupers, they've always had this agreement, which is, gone on for 20 odd years um that yeah once you hit that so that you can really soak up that last bit of atmosphere and find your family before you cross the finishing line and Mm. i mean that kind of stuff you can't replicate yeah that's that's great i didn't i didn't know that was a a thing in the age group ranks i love that oh i'm not i think it's just between those guys um i've heard it before i've heard it before yeah okay Um, i also know that if you stand on the top of polani watching the leaders go through there's a woman there who is formidable as the um she runs the aid station up there and if you step on the road too much you will get hurt so <laughs> where are we going to find people like that she's amazing yeah. and she's formidable and i'm frightened of her every time i stand there, i used to stand there with felix from uh, challenge and mm-hmm. it was almost our yearly catch-up <laughs> except we had to keep an eye on what she was doing because she was brutal of her. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Uh, but again, coming from all of that, um, you know, and and looking at all the 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 different ways the sport is is being sort of run at the moment. One thing that sort of and and you as a coach, Mark, obviously, have seen this as well is that performance is 
you know, you ran, I think, oh, you might have done 80, I reckon 807, was that, am I right in your best time, 807, yeah. that sort of 92 or 3? Yeah, I think it was, I think it was 93. Yeah, okay. So 807 is amazing, like, in, and and I think Crowey finally went at 804, he might have done one year, and mm-hmm. everyone's like, my God. And now yeah. it's all like, if you're running 804 in a race, you're not going to make the top 10. So well, that's, what have we yeah, seen? Like Tim O'Donnell, he breaks eight hours, first American to do it in Conan. He gets second, doesn't even win the thing. <laughs> <laughs> so and, and, are, and similar story in the women's field. Um, and I, I, obviously we talk about the men because we're speaking with Mark. But in the women's field, it's a very similar thing. Sub, If you're not sub nine, get out of here type of thing. Mm. It's the same. Yeah. Sorry, Phil. No, no, 100%. Yeah, but where are we seeing this so much? Yeah, if you're a woman and you're running three hours, you're not winning. You know, you're not mm. coming close. You got to run low two fifties, and I'm sure it'll even be two forties pretty soon. Uh, you know, and, and same for the men. You know, obviously, the question is how did how did that all happen? And um, you know, I I think it starts. The, the answer actually starts from the very beginning. You know, each each year there's this knowledge base built on, on how to train and how to race and how to prepare. And so, you know, the success of those today is built on the shoulders of those who raced before, you know, there's no way that, um, you know, Jan Ferdana could show up in 1978 and just pop off a 743, you know, that, that time is because of all the knowledge, knowledge that's out there. Second thing obviously is technology, you know, I, I look at um, like the bike that I had the last year that I that I competed in. It was the first one that I actually had that was sort of like a, the beginning predecessor of the aero bikes that we have now. However, my position was so non-aero compared to, you know, just physically how they've figured out to stick a body on a bike and make it super fast. So there's there's that techno- technological issue that has, has really advanced the times. But I think... Um, the biggest thing that has taken place recently uh, has to do with um, a lot of the nutrition. You know, the the times that people go in Kona are not limited by fitness. They're limited by your ability to absorb calories fast enough to um, hold the speed that your fitness is able to carry you. In cooler climates, less less demanding courses. Um, you can go faster simply because your body's under less stress. In Kona, it's it's your body's under total stress. It's very hard to absorb calories, and the and the nutrition nowadays is so much better at delivering calories quickly in in a way that doesn't cause nauseousness and upset stomachs like the stuff that we had. That I think that's actually one of the that's the final piece that's been put in place recently that's enabling these men and women to go so, so fast. Just a side note on that, and I'm sure that not many people know this, but I raced the Ironman in Hawaii 12 times. Hmm. I won at six. 11 of those 12, I got sick to my stomach and threw up on the bike. So five of those wins, I got sick to my stomach and threw up on the bike. The only one that I did not get sick to my stomach was the final one in 1995. That was the only, that was the first one where the nutrition had been evolving and was slowly getting to the point where I could actually stomach it for eight hours. So huh. pretty wild, no? Um, can I have to ask a question? Was that the bike you were referring to? Was that the Huffy? Uh, yeah. 
Yeah. I no, it was a GT. It was a GT. Okay. The, okay. the final year, the final year that I raced, it was a GT. Prior to that, it was a Huffy. Yeah. It was, uh, it was carbon fiber, but it, it weighed about two tons. You know, <laughs> so I what? don't care how aero it was. That thing was like, really? <laughs> Mark, in your opinion, what's what's the slickest bike going around at the moment? I don't know. Everybody seems to like canyons. Um, I look at it and I don't I don't see the advantage, but it, they certainly go fast. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's you you can there's so many great bikes out there. You know, between a Ventum and a Felt and a Canyon. I mean, you name it. Every, that that part there's i think there's probably not a lot of difference not a lot of significant difference anyway it's the biggest difference now for at least for the top people is going to be dialing in their position so that it's really aerodynamic and, and sustainable yeah there's um there's some real garbage out there too though. That's <laughs> on back. oh my god it's like like cardboard hey um i went to the australian open yesterday that's just a random side fact um awesome. and it was I, I go each year. Um, I know nothing about tennis. I know less than nothing about tennis, but I do like going and seeing, you know, really good people doing really good things. I watched uh, Osaka. Is it Naomi Osaka? The world, she might be world number one or two. Again, mm-hmm. not apologies for tennis fans. Watching her warm up, right? I was watching her do her thing and she was amazing. But she had, there was on a court which her, with her watching her warm up would have been six dudes. Would have been that many people just following her around everywhere. Hmm. Mark, when you were in your prime in the 80s and 90s, how many people were in your entourage that you carry around to races? <laughs> well, most races it was me. But, you know, <laughs> the big ones, Nice and um, Hawaii, um, most times I had a, a gentleman that was a massage therapist who was there with me. Um, uh, for sure in Kona, um, a couple of years, I had a, a woman who cooked dinners, shopped and cooked dinners for us. So that, you know, eating was not anything I had to even think about preparing anything. And, um, a couple of years, you know, my, my brother was there helping with bike stuff. Um, so it was small, you know, just three or four people. It was not a big entourage and, and they weren't people that were following me around day and night all the rest of the year either to be fair to her she might have needed them but there was a lot going on if you had social media in your day um and i'm a child of that era as well having watched social media come on and thinking that in 1990 something that the internet was a fad (laughs) um how do you reckon you would have gone with all that it would have just been part of what i did um the, the interesting thing is, though, um, you know, and, I, and I've, I've, I've written articles and spoken about this on videos. I, I think that uh, social media and Internet and the connectedness has reduced people's ability to recover because, you know, a lot of times you, you go out, people go out and they train and then they come back home and then they're sitting on the couch. They're not training, but they're scrolling through social media. And so their brain is still functioning at super high capacity, just scrolling through Instagram pictures or, you know, watching another TikTok or whatever it is. (laughs) Um, And they don't allow themselves enough true downtime. Probably the only downtime that most people get is when they shut their brains off, go to bed and close their eyes and go to sleep. 
but I think it's important to have for recovery. I think it's important to have good periods throughout the day where you're not only giving your body a rest, but you're giving your, your mind a rest so that it can recharge. And so that you can kind of actually space out and daydream and let your, your mind idle a little bit. And I think there's, that doesn't happen enough. So if I was racing back in the day, uh, with social media, that would have actually been part of my recovery strategy would have been to, um, limit the amount of time that I'm actually going through social media. I probably would have had to do like most of the top pros look like they're doing now, which is to, um, get somebody else to, to be in charge of taking the pictures and putting them up and coming up with the cute little sayings and stuff like that to go underneath <laughs> them. Cause if you have to do that, I know because I do it for a lot of my, <clears throat> for Mark Allen sports, Mark Allen coaching, um, I, myself and Scott Zagarino, you know, we do all of the social media for that. And it takes a huge amount of time and energy. I, it, some of it's really fun, but at the same time, if I was trying to train on top of it, you know, four five, six, seven, eight hours a day, forget it. Yeah, there's, uh, I, I completely agree with you. There is something, something big in that. Um, the, the low vibrations and energy, um, obviously it's not like training or anything, but that your brain has to come up with to be dealing with social media, whatever that might be, um, takes takes it out of you a lot more than what you can imagine. And I, I couldn't agree more. People do not think about that. Well, the people who are doing it themselves and putting a lot of effort into it don't possibly think about that. You know, it, you think about it this way, you know, when I don't know who a famous photographer would be, maybe somebody like Ansel Adams, right? Here's this guy who did these incredible black and white photos years and years ago. And you would look at one of his photos and just sort of get lost in it for a few minutes or a half an hour or something. And just look at all the different textures and, and, and contrasts and stuff. Now, you you get a thousand incredible photos a minute on as you're scrolling through Instagram. It's like, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, mm. wow. And so it's like your brain is getting this. Yeah. It's like, it's like mental crack, you know, it's like, a drug. <laughs> you know, it's like your brain's getting a little visual. I don't even want to say it. It's like a little visual orgasm every time it, you know, and so that <laughs> takes, that takes friggin' neurotransmitters to, do and it's it, it hits that high pleasure point in your brain and you do it over and over and over and all of a sudden your brain's just exhausted it doesn't have enough energy to do the subtle stuff it needs to do which is like to tune into your body when you're eating and go how mm. much protein do i need in this meal how much fat do i need how many calories how big of a meal how small of a meal am i hungry or am i thirsty you know just all of these little subtle things that go into recovery and letting your nervous system calm down your nervous system is just yep. like a muscle if it's stimulated it depletes it you have to let all those neurotransmitters replenish and that happens during meditation during mm -hmm. just being calm watching the sunrise the sunset just being immersed in the beauty of the ocean with no purpose other than to just sit there and look at it you know things like that and that was a part of my training mm. you know, that wasn't that was a conscious part of how I recovered and it was easier because I didn't have social media to scroll through. So um, I didn't have as much pull, 
but uh, you know, okay, here's an example from the modern world. My phone had a had a, some kind of malfunction a year or two ago, and I had to order a new one. And the new one, my current phone didn't, my mobile phone didn't work, and the new one didn't come for two weeks. And so for two weeks, when I was driving, no matter where I was, there was this peace. Oh my God, I am sucked into this 100% like everybody else. And it's, it's okay. The stuff, you know, it's so like, if we didn't have social media and internet and all that, this podcast wouldn't exist. Right. So it's, Hmm. it has its purpose and it can be very cool, but it also is like everything else. If it's overdone, it's going to detract rather than enhance everything you're doing. Well, there's the other flip side too, um, of the, you know, the pros who read the messages, the comments, um, you know, running a website for a decade like I did, and we had quite a robust, let me tell you, uh, Twitter following. And every time we put something up with an opinion on it, oh my God, we would get hit like nothing else. We were the digital pinata of the triathlon world, and we used to get smashed everywhere. Um, you read enough of that. That also is depleting in your mental health, and it's a, um, it has a knock-on effect. You again, for those who are searching for numbers, if they're not posting something and 25 people are liking it, but I need 35 people or I want 45 or, you know, or there's the stress of not just scrolling, but creating as well. You know, like you sit down after training, it's like, okay, if I don't have that social media person, I've got to then create my own. So I've got to do that because then I need my sponsors happy. And there's a whole realm of pressure. Um, I think, and, and the bigger the sport, the bigger the, um, the bigger the pressure that sits. And, you're right. Triathlon is now got to the point where there is, you know, people with social media um, managers to look after them. Um, and then those who don't would be feeling that pressure as well. Trying to break into that cycle is huge. Yeah. You know, I, I was speaking with Tim O'Donnell a couple of years back when I was coaching him and I said, you know, I really just cherished that, that time of year after Kona between when after Kona was done and the first of the year, cause it was, just a, you know, a month or two where I was completely free. I didn't have to be on a schedule. I could just relax and, and not, I had nothing pulling on me. And he goes, dude, that, that was then. And this is now he goes, I don't have one, one day or one week where I can just let down. He said, with all the commitments with social media, I'm always having to be on top of it. And it really struck me like, wow, you know, that's, that's a little out of hand, the, the expectation on the athletes from, sponsors and from their fans and you know whatever yeah the word community is a dirty word to some people i would have thought you know build your community talk to your community engage your community all that kind of media um marketing buzzwords um Hmm. which i think steph you would have had a lot of um work with as well in your time at wits up would have been the same sort of setup oh definitely um and it wasn't I mean, I, I knew what was happening, but it wasn't really until I shut down Wits Up and, and similar to you, Mark, I went away just camping for four days. And I think I was telling you, Phil, the phone didn't work there. And I didn't, I left it in the car for four days and I've never felt more at peace. And it, <laughs> it, uh, it, it was just amazing, but it also, it, 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 social media is super valuable as well. It's just kind of striking that correct balance, which I think is always changing and moving and, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's if you're aware of it and trying to make changes uh, and get that balance or that rhythm right, then that's definitely a step in the right direction. But I know that there's 
there's technology out there now that they they produce. I think it's an app that you have on your phone that shuts down everything other than say phone calls and emails or whatever, so that it's taking that control out of your hands. There's things like that now that are being created to help with people's uh, mental mental health. Um, yeah. Is there some dude doing a challenge where he said that the the challenge for the week was the first thing you do when you get up is not touch your phone? Oh my gosh. Mm. I, I don't know. That's I me. Get out of bed. Yeah. yeah. Couldn't get out of bed. Mm. Hey, Mark, how important is a mullet to good racing? Because <laughs> I want to. Well, have- you well, hey, let me ask Tommy Busker. Tommy, what do you think about a mullet? <laughs> Tommy's like, dude, a mullet is like killer stuff. You can do like slow dancing with it and you'll be like a hit at the beach party in your tank top, you know, your muscle shirt. And that mullet is just kind of like, <laughs> people just kind of go, and it just like blows back like an eagle's tail. You're like flying high and mullet. Oh, mullet. I, you know, I, I look back at some of the photos of my race and, and I thought I was so, so cool with the haircuts and the, you know, the, the clothing. And I'm like, that is so hurting. That is just so hurting. So, because yeah. you look at like you, you, Paul Newby Fraser, dominant mullet. Ken Souza, dominant <laughs> mullet. George Pierce, he raced time and time again in the Coors biathlons in the time. He didn't have a mullet, George Pierce. He had a buzz cut, like proper, proper military style haircut mm-hmm. never won you dominant i mean you know this is the thing right all these so-called pros with their fast speed and free speed dudes just grow a mullet works for the women as well paul and newby fraser had a flying mullet and look what it landed her multiple wins one last quick question um and i'm gonna let steph finish this up here mark in 1989 you did avignon triathlon spot anderson beat you out of the water uh, well, he, yeah, a lot of people did, but anyway, keep going. Correct. You end up winning, so ha ha to them. Did Spot ever say anything to you as you went past him? Because I know you you would have blown the doors off him on the bike. I think you were like eight or nine minutes faster. Um, Spot is a icon down here in Australia, and everybody knows him. Um, would he have was he he much on the chirp? Was there much on the chirp as you were sort of blasting by everybody? You know, I didn't say one word to anybody when I went by. Yeah, it's like. When you're when you're racing, the last thing you want to do is strike up a conversation and waste that energy. Every every breath counts, especially when you're behind and it looks like you're going to get your ass kicked, which it did when I came out of the water there. You know, and they had um, the river the river the, that we swam in had um, locks uh, that could control the flow, and so they had to decide: do we close the locks so that there is no flow? and we have it be 1500 meters or do we leave the water flowing but we make the swim longer so that the time is going to be pretty accurate well they ended up doing both they closed the locks and they made the swim long so instead of coming out of the water in 17 18 minutes i think i came out in almost 30 yeah and, 20, um, 28 28 minutes 28 yeah so hmm. that was i was so far back and i thought i was having a really crappy race because i was really f- nowhere near the lead um, but anyway, Spot Anderson, yeah, he's a he's a he's a character, a classic, a piece of history, and um, I think he's probably from what I have seen of him over the years, he's he's just as uh, out. How would I say uh, outgoing <laughs> as, as ever? So yeah, he is that. For those of the history buffs, sorry, Steph, the history buffs there. Mark Allen wins. 
Glenn Cook, Rick Wells, Miles Stewart, Rob Barrell, the man from Netherlands, Brad Bevan and Mike Pig, and then Spot. I mean, that is an all-star list of uh, if you're a person who was in this sport in the 80s and 90s, you know, you need to throw in a Jimmy Riccatello and a Harold Robinson and something like that. And you've got like the, you know, Molina and you've just got some amazing um, men on the women's side too. You look at Erin Baker in that year and and she was ridiculous that they just it was a real dominance it was a fun time to be watching the sport oh for sure my gosh I reckon there'd be a lot of people listening to this who may only know one or two of those names but we you need to look it up jump on YouTube there's got to be some old footage there is um, there is yeah go and go and check it out that is uh that's some uh, some raw triathlon, I would say. Um, but that's how we grew up, though. That's the totally. whole thing. Like we had magazines, no internet. It was all you know. I have the '89 Kona magazine, the triathlete magazine. I had that in my house. You know, Amazing. hung onto it with you there, Mark, on the front with the first victory, the most famous of all. You know, those things you still have. I've got Greg Welsh winning in Orlando with him and Mickey Mouse. Um, mm. you know, oh. on the front cover. No, that's how we. That's how we did it back in the day. Um, but it was, yeah, it was fun. It was a fun time. There's a lot of great personalities racing in that time. Uh, well, I, and I think you, there's great personalities now. And um, I think you hit that word personalities is a very key thing. You know, in the 80s, early 90s, I, re- I remember, you know, it was like, is the, is the, the bike shop or the triathlon shop going to get their copy, their monthly copy of Triathlete Magazine first, or am I going to get mine in, my mail, in the mail first? You know, everybody <laughs> was just waiting each month to see what was written. And um, since, you know, a lot of the, the same characters were winning races, the, the magazines could really focus on creating the personalities and it, or uh, revealing the personalities of each of the athletes who was at the top of the sport, both men and women. And, you you had you had people that you were cheering for and you had people that you, you thought I don't have anything in common with this person but just the same you followed it to see what each one of them was doing now now or there was a long stretch where people won races but I don't think there was much um, development of the personalities in in the of the athletes it was just more like a chronology of well so and so took a lead here and they were pushing hard there and they said it was difficult with the win but there's there's no uh, depth in, in in their character and and now like with the especially with some of the social media that the, the PTO is doing i think we're starting once again to really get a, a grip or a handle on who these athletes are and, and what makes each one of them different and what makes them tick and that's what i've been trying to slowly um, express in some of the recent Mondays with Mark Allen on YouTube that I do on my coaching channel there is to, is to sort of tr- highlight the difference between the athletes. Not that one is better or worse necessarily, but that they each have their own personalities and characters. And, you know, like, for example, like Lionel Sanders, I love the guy because you want to, you want to spend some time on social media that with, that's real, go look at his stuff. Obviously, you know, if he has a crappy day, he tells you he has a crappy day. He doesn't go, gee, I just had the most amazing 17 and a half hour solo ride in the, in, in the sunshine of the Alps of, you know, Austria or whatever. It's like, no, he said, I had a crappy ride on Zwift today and, you know, I got to get it together for tomorrow or whatever. So he's real. And, and I think that's what the PTO is trying to do with their, um, development of, of the personalities of the athletes is show their strengths, 
show their weaknesses, show that they're real and start to cheer for all of them. Yeah, and uh, that's what audiences want. They need uh, authenticity. They want to find out the, the depths of these personalities. And we've discussed this on this uh, podcast before that we want to see that as well, as long as it's not too fabricated because the audience can see through that uh, from a mile away. But I feel like it's it's gaining momentum and it, and it, it is working. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, Mark, I, yeah. Oh, oh, sorry, you go. I think this year is going to be really exciting because, you know, we haven't had a proper season in three years. Mm. Um, we haven't had an Ironman World Championship in three years. There's been some incredible performances done by individuals, but other than 70.3 Worlds, and even, you know, that that was probably the closest thing to a, a, a true full field that we've had in in a long time but even that there was there were some people missing that i think just it just didn't work for them to get there or that they didn't want to pay the price of quarantining and all that kind of stuff so Hmm. to go from 19 from 2019 to 2022 without real fields racing there's going to be a lot of changes some of the old folks are not going to have what they had before and some of the young folks are going to really surprise people and then as we all know, we've got this whole new emphasis on um, metrics and analysis that the Norwegians, Norwegians have been putting in place for years, and they're starting to get the, the they're seeing the benefits and the payoff of training their athletes with such precision. And so, it'll be it'll be super exciting. I think you're going to see some new heroes. Uh, you're going to see some old folks where you're going. Ooh, they should not have come back for one more because they were kind of pathetic out there, you know. <laughs> oh gosh, I think we we all agree that uh, Kona is the the heartland of the Ironman World Championships, and we don't want to see it move. However, I am really excited about St George in May. I really want to see for all those reasons that you just mentioned. And on top of that. Um, one thing that either way, the, the Ironman World Championship in St. George is a very, very unique event. It's yeah. if they don't ever change it out of Kona, that will be the one time in the history of the sport that it was outside the, the islands of Hawaii. And that makes it very unique. And if you win that and that's the way it pans out, you will be remembered beyond any of the other probably beyond many of the other Kona races, if they do end up moving the Ironman World Championship to different venues from time to time, um, that one will be remembered as the first time ever that it was moved. And Mm -hmm. so that too will be something that's memorable and unique. So Mark, I've got one question that I've I've always kind of been curious about and we've obviously touched on uh, the fact that you're an icon of the sport, you know, a mover, a shaker, a, a game changer, but I, I'd really love to know from your in in your opinion, how how do you think you've helped change and pave the way for the sport for the next generation? Gee, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> Just now. In, in a couple of ways. Um one one way that I think helped pave the way and change the way was the race in 1989 with Dave Scott in, in Kona, because that that was the first year that people really saw that you can race the Ironman 
in mm-hmm. Hawaii. It's not a survival contest to see who slows down the least. It's a race from start to finish. And it completely changed the mindset of everybody I was competing against. Like, wow, okay, we really do have to race this thing. Um, and so that was, I think that sort of opened up the modern era of Ironman racing and, and, and triathlon in, in ways that no other, no other single race did. Um, and then personally, um, for me as a coach, you know, I've, I have, um, 40 years of experience in the sport of triathlon. I had another 12 years of, of swimming experience. So I've got 52 years of athletic performance, um, experience. And through that, I've, I've sort of, I keep sifting through what works, what doesn't work, the basics that everybody needs to employ and the new things that are helping fine tune all of that. And so I think I've always kind of been, um, a voice of reason. Like I haven't jumped on the latest diet or, or, or super secret training technique, or, you know, this one more thing that's going to get you to go so much faster. I've always stayed steady with the, the, the tried and true principles of training. And, and I think I've shown over time through the athletes that I coach and, uh, and others who train similar to how I like to have people do it, that, um, there is no real secret. It's very simple, you know, that, and, and, and you have to be consistent with training. You have to recover, you have to test yourself, but only to the point where it's a stretch, but then tomorrow, you know, you can get up and you can do it again. And through that, I, I think finally, after so many years of kind of saying this, a lot of the same things out there in the world, people are realizing, wait a minute, what, what he's been saying all along is actually true. <laughs> and um, it's just like, you know, Lionel Sanders, he had amazing success, but also some failures. And now he's being coached by the Norwegians and they're having him really work on his aerobic base, which all of a sudden he said is a complete game changer and something that it's like, yeah, I've been saying that for 40 years now. So, so I guess two different, two different venues. One was how I raced, you know, what I did in, especially in 89. Now it's how I've consistently trained people for years. And then also the third piece. And I think this is something that, um, you know, Scott Zagarino, my, my, my business partner in Mark Allen sports, he said, you need to emphasize this more. And that's, the need for balance in all of this for people, you know, balancing your athletic dreams with the demands of your, your, your day-to-day life, your family life, your work life, so that everything enhances everything as opposed to having your sport add stress to your life and, and detract from these other things that really do have importance and will out, will probably outlast your sport anyway. Mm. And, you know, that's something that I always strive to have was a semblance of balance. Um, and it didn't mean that, on any given day, what I did was balance. It just meant over the course of a year, the energy I put into triathlon was then also balanced out at other times of the year with energy that I put into my family, my friends to developing my, you know, sort of inner spiritual um, character as well. So. Mm. Great well answer. Said. <laughs> yeah, well said. I couldn't agree more. I think you've, again, you were, as I said in the, in the top of this is, you know, foundational people in this sport um, and, still operating within the sport, which is amazing. Um, Mondays with Mark Allen, if you're not watching it, you should, because it is bloody funny. And it's also just interesting to get insight. Um, I am a regular 
on this one watching um your comments around the olympics etc i found too and meeting athletes and um i love that you you use the rarefied moment you know those sorts of commentary around it i think it's um it's fantastic so if you're not on mondays with mark allen get on it it's beyond well worth it um and also mark allen coaching as well doing lots of great things um we're gonna wrap it up and we really appreciate you giving us some of your time um for the beautiful people of triathlete magazine mark um well i i really look forward to seeing what you come up with uh in 2022 and we wish you a well and a good one Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Steph. Great chatting with you guys. Thank you so much. Amazing, amazing from Mark Allen. This has been The Cool Down. Thanks to Triathlete Magazine. If you want to get involved, please let us know how you like this one and also uh, support those who come on like the wonderful Mark Allen. Steph, thanks to you, mate, and we'll catch you in the following week. Thanks for listening to The Cool Down. Make sure to check out all in the world of triathlon with Triathlete Magazine.